If you have the book with you, let's turn to page 250. Just to set a little context, when we started this chapter, um, there was this young boy in Yogananda's school by the name of Kashi. And Yogananda kind of almost a little subconsciously shares with him that he's going to die soon, he's going to pass away soon. And Kashi makes Yogananda promise that if I leave my body, that in my next incarnation I'd like for you to find me and set me immediately back onto the path to freedom, onto the spiritual journey. And Yogananda, of course, makes that promise fairly reluctantly, but he does. And so we left it just as Kashi passes away. My love for Kashi and the pledge to find him after death night and day haunted me. No matter where I went, his face loomed up before me. I began a memorable search for him, even as long ago I had searched for my lost mother. I felt that inasmuch as God has given me the faculty of reason, I must utilize it and tax my powers to the utmost in order to discover the subtle laws by which I could know the boy's astral thereabouts. He was a soul vibrating with unfulfilled desires, I realized. A mass of light floating somewhere amidst millions of luminous souls in the astral regions. How was I to tune in with him among so many vibrating lights of other souls? Some of you have participated in a ceremony that we do called the Astral Ascension Ceremony. It's something that Swami Kriyananda wrote and it's usually done when somebody passes away here and we use that whole ceremonial energy to help guide that soul back into the light and just feel because as Yogananda is saying here, all of us, you know, when we leave this body, those unfulfilled desires, those tendencies that we've generated, not just in this life that we've brought with us over so many lifetimes, they continue to stay with us and they in fact center themselves around our chakras. And that's where they vibrate. Remember we talked about all these aspects, tendencies, experiences, thoughts, desires, anything we push away, anything we want, they form these vrittis within us, like a whirlpool. And each vritti, like a chakra, it vibrates. It's constantly in motion until it's neutralized, until it's fulfilled. And so those little vrittis, you know, each of us are in a certain way, uh, what would you want, if you want to call your aura, if you want to call your, you know, whatever, your soul, even though that's not the exact definition, but it's just the energy, the magnetism of the combined vrittis in our body. Some of them are more active, so if we have a very real desire, I want to make a lot of money, I want to be very famous, I you know, want to find the right partner. So that vritti has a lot more energy, a lot more magnetism. It's much more restless waiting for itself to be neutralized. And then we have some dormant ones. And we have some much larger vrittis which are just, I want to be happy in general, isn't it? So everything we do, that one vritti is almost always there, hoping that that happiness will be found. So we can think of ourselves, and it's a beautiful image, to see ourselves as just this uh, bundle of vrittis, unfulfilled vibrations waiting to find fulfillment, waiting to get neutralized. 
Now that's why the science of the spiritual path exists. It exists so that we don't have to only fulfill our desires outwardly, but that we have a, a shortcut, so to speak, of building so much life force and prana and energy in the spine that that vritti can just be washed away. Because there's so much that we've put into motion. One very scary thought, as Yogananda put it, it, put it is that every desire must be fulfilled. So there'll be lots of desires all of us have just put out subconsciously even. Yeah, wouldn't it be lovely if, you know, I was married to the most beautiful woman in the world? Just out there. It has to be fulfilled now. Anything you put into the universe, you are obligated or in truth, the universe is obligated to actually neutralize. Because any energy put into the universe puts the universe out of balance. And so therefore, the only way for it to find balance is to return that vibration back to the sender. And that's the very law of karma, isn't it? So imagine, Swamiji, when, he, when Yogananda told him that as a young monk, he said, Master, even a desire for an ice cream? <laughs> and Master said, oh yes, that too has to be fulfilled. So imagine how many things during the day we think, oh, wouldn't it be lovely if it was not so hot? Boom, <laughs> one more desire has to be fulfilled. Oh, wouldn't it be lovely if the grass was greener? Oh, wouldn't it be lovely if so on and so forth and so on and so forth. And that requires now lifetime after lifetime to be fulfilled. The only way that desire will be fulfilled is if you're drawn back into this planet of existence. And so here we are, just a bundle of unfulfilled vibrations looking for fulfillment. And so Yogananda was tuning into Kashi in that particular way. And that's how, as I started, when we do the astral ascension ceremony, it's helpful to have somebody who actually knows the person who's passed away. And usually it's done for the family. You can just, they can just tune into who that person was and just feel among the thousands of luminous lights in the astral world, they can connect and you can do that even now to anybody who's, you know, gone beyond. You can connect to their soul just by the vibration that you know that they kind of emanated in when they were in their body. A very similar vibration is being emanated also in the astral region. In regions. fact, Yogananda says that every soul is endowed with individuality. individuality. So even, I mean, this is an amazing concept. Even when we unite ourselves with the divine, when we become omniscient, omnipresent, one with absolutely everything, still we don't lose that sense of individuality, mm. who we really are. So that will always makes us, make us unique. I mean, and that's the beauty of not just loving yourself, but just be grateful of who you are because there will never be anyone like you. So why you want to be like somebody else? <laughs> why you are always comparing with somebody else or I hope I would, you know, have this or that. I mean, you are so unique, so special, so you. So just keep reinforcing those talents, those skills, those attitudes that you already have 
and make them even greater and bigger and make that individuality that characterizes you for who you are brighter and shinier. So this is something that it's always very helpful when we feel a bit discouraged or when we enter into the comparison game or where we think we are not good enough or I wish I could have these other talents. I mean, excuse me, <laughs> you are so special already because no one else is like you. So start owning who you are and find ways to refine that to you know, make the most and the best of who you are and learn, then find ways to share that with the world because God has a song to play through you and he needs you and we need you. Using a secret yoga technique, now secret yoga <laughs> technique, uh, so I guess we won't be learning how to do this anytime soon. I broadcasted my love to Kashi's soul through the microphone of the spiritual eye, the inner point between the eyebrows. With the antenna of upraised hands and fingers, I often turned myself round and round trying to locate the direction in which he had been reborn as an embryo. I hoped to receive response from him in the concentration-tuned radio of my heart. So let's just get a visual of what's going on here. You've got Yogananda just having his hands up, you know, kind of getting, because our hands and the palms especially are kind of one of the most sensitive parts of our body. You've got a lot of nerve endings, which means they have a lot of nadi endings over here. In fact, they talk about, you know, every part of your hand goes and affects some part of your body as well. So you've got Yogananda out there just tuning in, trying to feel vibrationally in the fingers while he's doing two things. He's sending out from the spiritual eye a very clear message. He said, and his message was that of love. And he's sending out this message of love. Yogananda called the spiritual eye, the point between the eyebrows here, as the transmitting station for the soul. And then he called the Anahat Chakra, the heart center, as the receiving station of the soul. And he would often talk about, especially when you're looking for guidance, when you're looking for intuition, when you're looking to receive information from the universe, you know, deep intuitive perceptions. Again, you do it in the exact same way. You send out whatever your question is, whatever your thought is, whatever your dilemma is, and then you sit in that silence and you wait to feel the response in your heart. But he calls it the concentration-tuned radio of my heart. And that's what, where the key is. Yogananda could, amongst, imagine that, amongst those millions of souls, he could focus his life force so kind of concretely so that that connection was established with that one individual soul. Now, he was doing it, of course, specifically for Kashi, but I'm talking about we've got millions of thoughts, millions of desires, millions of hopes and dreams and wanting to go here, wanting to go there. Whenever we're looking for an intuitive response from the universe, we're going to have to really narrow that field of scattered energy back and try to figure out how can I get my life force to be so deeply concentrated like a laser 
that it shoots out into the universe carrying only and solely that question. The problem isn't that the universe isn't going to respond to you. It is even though I'm sitting there, I'm saying, I'm asking the universe, what should I do next? What should I do next? But what's actually being transmitted is what should I do next? Combined with 300 other thoughts that are also going on in your mind. So by the time the you know, information, the message is received by, you know, not some computer guy up there, but by the ether, it's just a garbled message of what should I do next, what, what's for lunch, I wonder if that person still likes me, oh, next time I see this other guy, this is what I'm going to say to him, oh, you know, so this is the projects I'm working on, this is the next day I have to do, and by the time that one message that you're trying to send gets completely lost. So you've got Yogananda here, completely concentrated, connected to Kashi from the spiritual eye. He's got his hands upraised because he's trying to feel vibration from around him. And the way he puts it, he's like, he's just turning round and round. Imagine he's standing in a crowded street somewhere and he's just kind of going round and round and, and round. the hands are connected with the heart chakra as well. And of course, the hands are connected to the heart. Thank you for that. And so if he's trying to receive it here, he's also naturally trying to receive it here. And he's just trying to feel which direction Possibly, is Kashi going to be reborn? And the thing is, he doesn't yet know, is Kashi reborn? So he has to do this all the time. Every day he used to be up there, not yet. Okay, then tomorrow, again he's up there, not yet. So you can see the amount of perseverance he put. If somebody had asked you, like, you know, can you do this for me? Ah, you might try once, we might try twice. But Yogananda was there every day, trying to feel, because he didn't know when Kashi's soul will decide that, not only decide when will the right womb be available, when will the right circumstances be available for those very unfulfilled karmic desires to find the right soil and the right opportunity back on earth. You know, so it's not even up to the soul, it's not like the soul says, oh, chalo, you know, five minutes minute astral world say. They have to wait to see whatever vibration exists here, where am I going to find the resonance on earth to be able to then complete and fulfill those particular missions, purposes, desires that I have to set out to fulfill. I intuitively felt that Kashi would soon return to earth and that if I kept unceasingly broadcasting my call to him, his soul would reply. I knew that the slightest impulse sent by Kashi would be felt in my fingers, hands, arms, spine, and nerves. That's how sensitive Yoganandaji had made his body. And that's what all spiritual practices are about, to sensitize our body to the point that even the slightest vibration can be felt, can be experienced, can be understood. And that's really how spiritual knowledge and wisdom is also transferred from guru to disciple, not through words, not through, you know, theories and principles. It's transferred through vibration. And that's all we have to feel. And that's what we are preparing ourselves to receive. With undiminished zeal, I practiced the yoga method steadily for about six months after Kashi's death. So yeah, that, you know, he was committed to finding Kashi. Walking with a few friends one morning in the crowded Bobazar section of Calcutta, I lifted my hands in the usual manner. For the first time, there was a response. I thrilled to detect electrical impulses trickling down my fingers and palms. 
These currents translated themselves into one overpowering thought from the deep recess of my consciousness. I am Kashi. I am Kashi. Come to me. So these vibrations, you know how it's, uh, you know, when we think about television, when we think about radio, when we think about you know, all these latest inventions, of course radio now is so old, but this is exactly what they are. They're electrical impulses being converted into audio and video. But what's traveling through those cables, you know, it's not like Mickey Mouse is like literally traveling through the cable and then comes up onto your screen. It's just an electrical vibration, it's just a certain frequency that's traveling that then translates into an audio-visual reality which we call television. And in the same way is how we receive anything. Yesterday, a friend of ours, it was his birthday and he was here to celebrate it with us and we're just having a, you know, philosophical discussion. And we're talking about the eyes and we said, you know, I don't actually see you where you are. I see you in my brain. All I see is the light reflected from you being translated in my brain into an image. I don't actually see you where you are, which is such a bizarre concept because it's something we'd never think of. But it's exactly the same thing that television is doing and it's the exact same thing that Yogananda is explaining here. All we do is receive vibrational input from the universe and everything's translated. Sound, everything you're listening to me right now is just a vibration entering into your, playing on your eardrum and being translated into words in your own mind. So, you know, it is, again, just from a scientific basis, the world itself has nothing to do with how we perceive it. It's completely different. Everything's working on the inside and very little is actually happening on the outside except that which we perceive on the inside. I am Kashi, I am Kashi, come to me. The thought became almost audible as I concentrated on my heart radio. Again, Yogananda was just trying to receive in the characteristic, slightly hoarse whisper of Kashi, so even the, the voice, the timbre of his voice, the tone of his voice was exactly the same. And Yogananda writes here, actually in the bottom, let's read this for a moment as a footnote. Every soul in its pure state is omniscient. Kashi's soul remembered all the characteristics of Kashi, the boy, and therefore mimicked his hoarse voice in order to stir my recognition. I heard his summons again and again, and I seized the arm of one of my companions, Prakash Das, and smiled at him joyfully. I think last class we talked about Prakash Das, who later on became Swami Atmananda, mm -hmm. who later on became the head of YSS in India. And for those of you who we were talking about Swami Gyanananda, Swami Atmananda was his guru. So that was Prakash Das, just a childhood friend at that time of Yogananda's. It looks as though I have located Kashi, and I began to turn round and round to the undisguised amusement of my friends and the passing throng. The electrical impulses tingled through my fingers only when I faced toward a nearby path aptly named Serpentine Lane. The astral currents disappeared when I turned in other directions. So this is how sensitive he was able to get. When he was turning towards a particular direction, suddenly he could feel that 
tingling sensation in the arms and in the moment he would be anywhere else it would stop so it became very clear to him the direction he had to choose ah I, I exclaimed Kashi's soul must be living in the womb of some mother whose house is in that lane my companions and I approached closer to serpentine lane and the vibrations in my upraised hands grew stronger and more pronounced as if by a magnet, I was pulled toward the right side of the road. Reaching the entrance of a certain house, I was astounded to find myself transfixed. I knocked at the door in a state of intense excitement, holding my very breath. I felt that the successful end had come for my long, arduous and certainly unusual quest. The door was opened by a servant who told me her master was at home. He descended the stairway from the second floor and smiled at me inquiringly. I hardly knew how to frame my question at once pertinent and impertinent. You can only imagine, here you are, you've been looking for this soul all this while and now you finally come to the house where perhaps that soul is residing and you're like, oh, how do I, what should I say to these people now? Please tell me, sir, this is Yogananda asking this man, please tell me, sir, if you and your wife have been expecting a child for about six months. <laughs> like, again, not some question you would usually go Enjoy knocking on somebody. <laughs> Hi, excuse me, is your wife pregnant by any chance over here? <laughs> yes, it is so. Seeing that I was a Swami, fortunately, Yogananda had the, right, had the right look to be asking such weird questions. Seeing that I was a Swami, a renunciate, attired in the traditional orange cloth, he added politely, Pray inform me how you know my affairs. I'm sure he was a little worried at that moment. What's happening? When he heard about Kashi and the promise I had given the astonished man, believed my story. I was going to say did not believe my story, but actually believed my story. A male child of fair complexion will be born to you, I told him. He will have a broad face with a cow lick atop his forehead. Now a cow lick, I had to look this up. I was like, what's a cow lick? <laughs> but it's like a little lock of hair that kind of falls onto the head a little bit. You, you see these cartoon babies, you know, and they have this little tiny little thing of hair here. So that's how I'm imagining it in my mind. His disposition will be notably spiritual. I felt certain that the coming child would bear these resemblances to Kashi. We talked about this in the last class, didn't we? Just how we like to think that when a soul is reborn, he's just completely new. You know, okay, ah, now I have this new set of uh, tendencies, I have this new set of outlook, this new perspective, new opportunities now to try again and do whatever I want. But it's actually just a continuation. Whatever you left in your previous incarnation, that's more or less exactly, including close to how that person even looked physically. That's more or less what that expression is going to be like. It's not going to be like, boom, suddenly different. I used to be a pauper and now suddenly I'm a king. I used to be, you know, very I used short to, and now I'm, very now I'm going to be very tall suddenly. I used to be horrible in music and now I'm going to be amazing in music. So yeah, at some time, some of those things may play out 
depending on the intensity of your desire. It's possible if you were very short and all you did throughout that incarnation was to say, I wish I was tall, I wish I was tall, I wish I was tall. And that vibration may attract to you in your next incarnation a tall body. It's possible. But usually the consciousness and the vibration that you express now, that each of us are expressing now, unless we don't make drastic growths within this incarnation itself, it's just as, as Yogananda said, and as, as we've often repeated, it's like going to bed at night and waking up in the morning. None of us wake up in the morning new. We don't wake up like saying, now my outlook of the world is completely different. Now I'm suddenly going to have a lot more willpower than I had yesterday. Now suddenly I'm going to meditate eight hours a day when yesterday I could only meditate five minutes, so on and so forth. Those kind of, you know, <laughs> crazy leaps don't happen even in incarnations. It's just the soul's long, slow, arduous journey expressing itself after each incarnation. Later, I visited the child whose parents had given him his old name of Kashi. That's just so sweet for me, The whole this yeah. whole episode, isn't it? I mean, Kashi was what? What, what did it say? 12 years 12 old? 12 years old. 12 years old. And he dies, he eats contaminated food, gets sick, you know, leaves the body, and then that's it. Six months later, boom, he's back. Or nine months, I guess, in this particular case. And he's back, you know, in another body, similar, back with his old name. It's like nothing really happened, isn't it? Like, yeah, those 12 years happened, but then, boom, I'm back again doing exactly what I, I'm going to do now. Everything that I left behind at that time, I'm just going to pick up all over again. Even in infancy, he was strikingly similar in appearance to my dear Ranchi student. The child showed me an instantaneous affection. The attraction of the past awoke with redoubled intensity. Years later, the teenage boy wrote me during my stay in America. He explained his deep longing to follow the path of a renunciate. I directed him to a Himalayan master who to this day guides the reborn Kashi. Again, an interesting little twist to a certain degree that perhaps Yogananda wasn't even his guru. And yet Yogananda took on. And that's why you can see that there was a slight reluctance or maybe more than a slight reluctance on Yogananda's part to promise Kashi to continue, you know, finding him in the next incarnation, setting him back onto the spiritual path because he did it purely out of love. But this is the relationship the Guru shares with all of us. And this is what he's doing for all of us. He's finding just the right circumstances that will awaken, just the right, you know, feelings in our heart, find just the right people who will suddenly you know, awaken in us a memory of back when we used to be on the path, when we were giving our lives more dedicatedly to the pursuit of truth and of God, and so on and so forth. And every time these circumstances are kind of brought back into our lives to see if if that vritti, because there are many vrittis, spirituality is one vritti inside us. The desire for God is one among a million or billion or who knows how many. But if it's strong enough, if that vibration is really strong, then again and again, lifetime after lifetime, we will pick it up again. And that's why, if you remember in the Gita, as we've been going through the Gita, how often does Krishna bring this point up? At the moment of death, if you think of me, you will come to me. At the moment of death, if you're in Sattva Guna, then you will go into Sattva. At the moment of death, again and again, he talks about the idea of moment of death, which doesn't mean that 
इन दैट मोमेंट कि मैं अभी मरने वाला हूं तो सडनली मैं स्पिरिचुअल बन जाऊंगा इट जस्ट मीन्स दैट कैन यू मेनटेन योर डीप लॉन्गिंग फॉर गॉड कैन यू मेनटेन दैट you know sattva vibration for the entirety of your life so that at the moment of death that's the primary consciousness in your mind then and only then will you be drawn quite quickly quite easily as yogananda put it over here harmoniously he is guided once again in the next life back onto the spiritual path there's no you don't have to fight for it again you don't have to like you know spend years kind of after doing everything else and then come back but that all depends on how long in the previous incarnation you really stuck to the path somewhere in there it doesn't mean that you know how oh, i considered yogananda my guru till the very end of my life no how intensely did you still follow not that i had a photo of his at home and when i was dying i looked at his photo and so therefore it all's good did you meditate every day for those 70 80 years or whatever it was did you really every day think about how deeply and more powerfully can i give myself to god to guru to a search far greater than my own individual egoic self and over and over again and that's what's going to determine lifetime after lifetime what comes for us and if in certain cases as krishna says when sattva becomes completely predominant then you no longer need to be reborn on earth and as shri yukteswar and we find out later on he's in hiranyaloka he's in one of the highest astral realms guiding people from the astral world to the causal world and so if sattva becomes so predominant in you then you don't need to be on earth or on the physical plane where the three gunas are very much always in flux then you remain in a higher astral realm making the progress from there further up to the causal realm although master always said the simplest is to go from earth to complete freedom because he says in the astral realm things are so nice <laughs> that the motivation to continue to seek freedom is actually not as strong i mean imagine if you're living in a beautiful place and everything's just lovely and people are just lovely and by your thought you can create anything that you want makes it a little hard to say let's leave this place and go somewhere else anything you want to add I was thinking about the whole scene of Master Yogananda looking for his disciple after death and in that transition when he's about to you know looking for a new incarnation a new form and I was thinking of course here uh, it is described as the promise that the guru makes to his disciple and his desire and yes to fulfilling that promise just looking for that disciple no matter what but the thought came that each one of us can do the same when we are looking or searching for our spiritual friends and those people or that spiritual family that we want to attract into our lives and therefore a spiritual path and a guru that will help us to continue with our spiritual evolution and perhaps this is something that if you have not found yet or you don't think you have that quality of friendship or you have not found yet your tribe uh, you should start praying for that <laughs> 
and sending out into the ether with an intense desire and concentrating energy, send me my spiritual family. Send me uh, like-minded people, a space, an environment where I can keep evolving, where I can feel spiritually safe and guided so I don't waste time within this incarnation. And even within your own spiritual family, pray to be in tune more often with those people who really will help you to grow faster because you know in any spiritual family i mean there are so many of us so pray even within that spiritual family to be closer and closer with those souls that are destined for you and your spiritual growth and the same you can do if you are looking for a spiritual partner mm. if you feel lonely if you want to attract the right partner start sending out those messages and ask not just the physical form of the partner that you think should be next to you and you can show off to your friends but the kind of soul who has the spiritual qualities that you need to implement within yourself and those qualities that you will feel inspired to develop as well within you and the same with you know, if you want to have a child, you know, we had a couple, a very good friend of ours, they are now Kriyabans, but when they started on the path, they came to us for a private counseling, counseling, and one of their main concerns was that they wanted to have a child, and they were trying and trying, but nothing happened, and we told them, look, why don't you start praying together as a couple every day with intention and inviting that soul into your life, especially into the mother's womb, with those qualities that you would like for that soul to have and to shine, and those qualities that you think you still need in your life to perfect. And they tried every single day. I mean, they will write us like, we did it today and it felt so good, it felt so special, even much more sacred. And I think over a period of six months to eight months, she conceived. And now they have a beautiful baby called Ruhi, and you can just see, you know, the qualities, and both of them were disciples, and by then, so she took her Kriya initiation with the baby, you know, <laughs> in eight months old. So they also prayed that the soul they wanted to invite in their lives was also spiritually evolved. And she was about to be, you know, incarnated in this world when, you know, they had Kriya already. So when you start connecting the dots and start really being mm, more thoughtful and mindful to the people, the souls, and the environment that you want to attract into your life. Um, these kind of techniques and practices are very, very helpful because the universe, the masters, the divine is really going to bring those people into your life. So very fascinating subject. 
and especially for those people nowadays in lockdown are feeling <laughs> lonely you know pray to be sent to the right spiritual online community in fact now that bar and shamini are here i mean they are doing a wonderful service to provide an almost 24 hours environment where other like-minded people from different countries and cities you know they come together and support each other and they know each other and meditate together and chant and have spiritual discussions and that's so fulfilling because no matter how lonely physically you are but knowing that you belong to a larger family that's very very fulfilling so that will be one other thought i wanted to add and the last thing is that um this is very beautiful when Yogananda sends Kashi to another guru. And this is something we have mentioned many times for many of you who start the path of Kriya Yoga with us through Ananda. And that moment comes where you feel very familiar with Yogananda, but you just don't know if he is your guru. And we always say, if you don't know, just ask Yogananda. If you are not my guru, that's okay. I'm so grateful you brought me to this point of my evolution. But send me to the guru that will help me, that will teach me what I need to learn. And we have seen that in all the cases that people had those doubts and asked Yogananda soon after, they found the path that they were meant to be part of. And, and then we all are still part of a family but it's just beautiful to see that these great gurus, you know, if we ask for their guidance, I mean, they are not competing with each other. They don't want more disciples. So if your desire is sincere, sincere to evolve, to grow, pray and ask to be guided and you will. Lovely. We have 10 minutes. So we thought we'll just go into the next chapter. The next chapter is more... I don't know, educational than inspirational. Uh, this is chapter 29, Rabindranath Tagore and I compare schools. <clears throat> so we're just going to read a few paragraphs here, just more the conversations or what Yogananda says about Rabindranath Tagore and or a conversation that they had. So we're starting from page 255, around the third paragraph. I met Rabindranath soon after he had received the Nobel Prize for Literature. I remarked after vocalizing, after our vocalizing, they were singing chants of Rabindranath's. I was drawn to visit him because I admired his undiplomatic courage in, dis in disposing of his literary critics. So this is a quality that Yogananda felt attracted to in Rabindranath Tagore that he just didn't particularly care for whatever his critics said, and that he was able to not only not care, but to put everybody in their right place. The scholars severely flayed Tagore for introducing a new style into Bengali poetry. He mixed colloquial and classical expressions, ignoring all the prescribed limitations dear to the pundits' hearts. His songs embody deep philosophical truth in emotionally appealing terms, with little regard for the accepted literary forms. One influential critic slightingly referred to Rabindranath as a pigeon poet who sold his cooings in print for a rupee. 
a nice image though somehow, a pigeon poet. But Tagore's revenge was at hand. The whole Western world paid homage at his feet soon after he had translated into English his Gitanjali or song offerings. A trainload of pundits, including his one-time critics, went to Shantiniketan to offer their congratulations. How quickly things change, isn't it? <laughs> Suddenly when somebody becomes well-known and famous, all of us like, oh, wait a minute, I want to be with this guy now. Rabindranath received his guests only after an intentionally long delay and then heard their praise in stoic silence. Finally, he turned against them their own habitual weapons of criticism. Gentlemen, he said, the fragrant honours you here bestow are incongruously mingled with the putrid odours of your past contempt. Is there possibly any connection between my award of the Nobel Prize and your suddenly acute powers of appreciation? I am still the same poet who displeased you when I first offered my humble flowers at the Shrine of Bengal. Who speaks like this? I wish people spoke like this more and more. It's just so beautiful, isn't it? When I first offered my humble flowers at the Shrine of Bengal, but what you see over here is true men of inspiration, men and women, of course. When, when your inspiration is divinely guided, you're not looking for outward praise, blame. You don't look for people to kind of approve or disapprove or give validation to your inspiration. Only when you know that your inspiration is divinely guided, can that strength come into you. But when our inspirations just, you know, how can I look this way? How can I say the right words? How can my poems be better loved? Then we really have to look constantly for worldly approval. And then any slight bitter remark, you know, brings us down. And any lovely remark elates us. And then we're just like being trashed on these waves of praise and blame and good and bad and love and hatred and so on and so forth. But that divine inspiration, and what divine inspiration also does is it constantly, not, on, not necessarily always, but often it breaks the established forms. It breaks through whatever people have kind of created into a condensed version and saying, just this is or nothing else. Just harmonium harmonium and then comes, you know, God trying to constantly break our own kind of ossified thoughts, our ossified feelings, our understanding of how the world works. And he brings these divine people, these personages in all forms, from music. I mean, everybody who is now what you would consider a great musician, a great physicist, a great, you know, literary you know, prodigy. They were all people in their time who actually were not accepted, who were often considered like completely out of tune with what was happening in the traditional scene, who were often scoffed by the orthodox traditionalist as, you know, these people, they don't know what they're doing, because they've always come to break these patterns, always come to bring something new, something divinely inspired. Because when that first form came, it's not like these pundits don't ha know what good music is or good poetry is. 
When that first time it came, it was divinely inspired. But what we do with divine inspiration is we box it, and we close it, and we tighten it, and then we give it this one form, and never again. And this is where religion also comes in. Religion takes inspiration that a saint brings, packages it really prettily, puts a nice bow tie on it, and says, this is it. You know, God can only be found if you chant. God can only be found if you meditate. God can only be found whatever that one saint brought. And that's why again and again, these avatars have to come to break, 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 over and over again. Everything that we've created into form and lost the spirit of has to be broken. And in this particular case, Rabindranath Tagore came for that poetic beauty that he brought. And especially in Bengal, <laughs> we're having a conversation among several Bengalis, so I think that's all right. It's just how sometimes there's so much intellectual pride in Bengalis. Not necessarily for any mistake, they, they ought to be proud because there's such beauty that has come out of it. But that same intellectual pride then creates the same issue. What we have is best and there's nothing else. But their intellectual pride is based on these people coming again and again and breaking these forms and creating new inspirations to of course be proud of. And hopefully more and more of us keep coming again and again to bring new inspiration to everything that's happening in this world. I don't know if you want to continue. You have something to add? No, no new inspiration? No new inspiration. You just want to show your husband off to people? <laughs> the newspapers? Where are we? The newspapers published an account of the bold chastisement given by Tagore. I admired the outspoken words of a man unhypnotized by flattery. Love that word. I was introduced to Rabindranath in Calcutta by his secretary, Mr. C.F. Andrews. If you know the life of Gandhi, you'll remember C.F. Andrews also played a very vital role in Gandhi's coming to India from South Africa and introduced Rabindranath Tagore to Gandhi as well who was simply attired in a Bengali dhoti. He referred lovingly to Tagore as his Gurudev. Rabindranath received me graciously. He emanated a soothing aura of charm, culture, and courtliness. Replying to my question about his literary background, Tagore told me that one ancient source of his inspiration, besides our religious epics, had been the classical poet Vidyapati. I've never heard of him. In fact, when I read this, and I was hoping somebody out there would search him, look him up, and let us know who this gentleman is, the classical poet Vidyapati. I'd like, just for a moment, to end there. Take maybe a minute or two to still our minds, receive whatever it is that we felt in this class, whether it is, as Narayani said, how can we go and find our soul friends, our soul partnerships? How can we attract that guidance into our lives? How can we attune our minds and hearts to God's will? And above all, how can we give of ourselves more and more that we may empty and purify ourselves? Let's feel also the inspiration of Rabindranath Tagore to be able to draw divine grace and express it 
creatively, beautifully, harmoniously, so that thousands, perhaps millions, may enjoy that inspiration. And if there's any thought form, any pattern, any habit, any perspective or understanding that you feel that you're too boxed into, that you're so stubbornly protective of, find ways to break those boxes, break those forms, and allow once again those fresh waters of creative inspiration to flow through you.